means it's time for Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. Joined, as always, by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. Morning. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Very interesting stories on the docket this week, including one involving a municipal council decision here on Vancouver Island. No, not that council. One further north. Uh, yeah, that's right. It uh, seems possible to uh, generate uh, municipal controversy uh, even north of the Malahat. Um, so th- this is a case that's uh, out of um, North Cowichan, uh, and it's a case that involves the issues of uh, interpreting zoning and the need for both consistency and explanations for why uh, a decision might be reached. Um, the particular case involves, uh, there's a race circuit uh, up in uh, North Cowichan, uh, which uh, originally uh, opened, I think, back in 2014. Uh, and when the company that was developing the race circuit uh, wanted to do that, uh, they, prior to purchasing uh, some property to construct the racetrack and associated facilities, um, made inquiries with the local municipality about whether the zoning that was in place would allow that to occur. Uh, the particular zoning that was in place, uh, there were two zones, but the, most of it was in an area called a industrial light zone that permitted things like auto body repair or industrial use, fueling installations, motor vehicle repair, this sort of thing. Uh, And so they thought there might have been some ambiguity in whether uh, a race circuit would fit within that zoning. Uh, But uh, the municipality uh, reviewed it and said, yes, that would be permissible, uh, and uh, then granted them the uh, requisite permit to build the racetrack. So they built the racetrack. Mm -hmm. Um, A few years later, they decided things were going well, and they wanted to Uh, expand. And there was an adjacent piece of property zoned in the same way, right next to the piece of property they already owned. They purchased it. (laughs) They then uh, went and applied uh, for a permit to build a larger racetrack on the adjacent piece of property. Mm -hmm. Uh, By that point, it sounds like some local opposition had developed, I suppose, due to the noise of the first racetrack. Um, And so when they applied for permission to uh, build the expanded racetrack, they were told no. Uh, And the municipality took the position that the zoning does not permit a racetrack to be built. Uh, They challenged that, um, and their argument amounted to uh, a review of that administrative decision uh, on the ordinary standard, which would be whether the decision is a reasonable one. Um, And they said, look, you know, it's the same zoning. You previously permitted it. Now you're not permitting it. Uh, and the judge agreed with the racetrack. Um, and the judge set out that uh, a administrative decision like that one need not necessarily uh, be the same. There could be some reason why uh, there would be a, a different conclusion reached, even on identical facts. But it is unreasonable to reverse your decision and offer no meaningful explanation as to why you're doing so. Uh, And so as a result, uh, the B.C. Supreme Court judge overturned the municipal uh, decision to refuse the permit on the basis that making an inconsistent administrative decision and not offering some sort of explanation for how it is you come to the opposite decision on the same fact pattern uh, is simply unreasonable. Uh, And so the takeaway, if you're a municipality, is you need to both act reasonably and explain your decision if you're making an inconsistent uh, uh, decision on what amounts to uh, identical facts. Um, And so 
uh, I think it's a, a positive decision in terms of um, uh, sort of the the rule of law and making sure that you've got you know consistent administrative decisions in where there is a, um, a particular legal regime in place. If people can't rely upon those uh, things and there to be consistent decision making, uh, we're all in sort of a topsy turvy world, yeah. uh, and people wouldn't know you know what can I do, what can't I do. Uh, and it can't simply be the, you know, length of the political foot or, you know, how many people are standing up on one side of the room or the other. Uh, we want to live in a place where uh, there is consistency, rationality, and explanations for decisions. So this one is going to go back to the municipality. The judge didn't decide the issue. The judge concluded the way they did this with no explanation made it unreasonable. Go back and try again. Um, and so now the municipality can either make a consistent decision um, and approve what's being asked for, or if they wish to deviate from their previous uh, decision about whether the zoning allows the racetrack, at the very least, they're going to have to explain themselves. Uh, And then if that explanation was not reasonable, that again might wind up uh, being subject to judicial uh, review. So I think positive decision in terms of uh, rationality, uh, and consistency so that people can, you know, know what they're allowed to do and, and not do. So uh, I like that, actually, because the whole or one of the benefits, I should say, of having rule of law instead of just rule by whoever has the biggest stick. And if they're in a good mood today and you ask for something, you're going to get it, is the ability for people to manage their affairs and to plan for the future. And predictability is a requirement in terms of being able to effectively plan, say, whether it's a racetrack or another business venture. One needs to be able to seek legal advice and ask the question, can I do this? And if counsel such as yourself or others say, we have no idea. Idea. It's like pulling the uh, lever on a slot machine every time. That's not helpful to society. No, business can't function. People can't function, right? It's yeah. like if you, uh, you know, bought a piece of property to build a house and the zoning said it was for house building and last year council allowed somebody to build a house right next door. Um, you know, it would be uh, not a, a good state of affairs if uh, for some arbitrary reason they just said, no, you can't build one here. Uh, there just needs to be predictability. So people can manage their affairs. And here, the company, I think, not unreasonably relying on the fact that this exact same zoning was permitted uh, this kind, exactly this kind of development a few years earlier. It's not unreasonable to conclude, well, the same thing should be allowed now. Um, and so I guess we'll, we'll see what the municipality does uh, with the uh, guidance of the Supreme Court judge. Next case, catastrophic injuries as a result of impaired and dangerous driving, resulting in a a two-and-a-half-year penitentiary sentence. Yes, boy, this was an awful case. Uh, This was a a case that involved um, a guilty plea uh, to dangerous driving and impaired driving, both causing bodily harm, uh, where a uh, young 20-year-old University of Victoria student um, was uh, hit uh, by a vehicle and the vehicle driver then took off and was eventually caught. Uh, but the uh, student was just catastrophically injured. Um, she wound up with very serious uh, uh, brain damage. And while she's still alive, uh, she requires constant care. Uh, and so just a awful circumstance. Um, one of the things I wanted to point out, it was interesting watching uh, the coverage of this uh, case uh, locally, it's a local case, um, was a discussion about um, sort of the uh, the judge and coming to the uh, ultimately the decision about the length of sentence to impose. And I should say that's uh, 
um, a significant sentence for uh, the a person who was sentenced uh, had no criminal record. He was also a young person, um, and he actually had a, a tragic family uh, background uh, that involved his own father being killed by an impaired driver when he was young, and then his life sort of going off in a, uh, a poor direction as a result of that uh, tragic loss that he suffered. Uh, but one of the things that struck me as I watched the, the sort of coverage of the case is something that I think people should know about in terms of um, sentencing decisions like this one. Um, this case, uh, like many cases, uh, are uh, resolved by way of what are called uh, a joint submission. And what essentially that means is that Crown Counsel, Prosecutor, and Counsel for the Accused have come to an agreement in terms of uh, what sentence would be appropriate. And on that basis, the accused person is pleading guilty to the offense. There's no uh, trial involved. Um, and there are some special rules that apply in terms of how a judge is to deal with a sentencing uh, like this one, um, where there is a, a joint submission. Prosecutor and the defense have come to an agreement that a two-and-a-half-year sentence would be an appropriate sentence here. Um, and um, where there is that kind of agreement, um, the Supreme Court of Canada, in a case that came out in 2016 called Regina versus Anthony Cook, has made clear that a judge who is imposing sentence where there is a joint submission uh, is required to impose the sentence being asked for by the prosecution and the defense unless imposing that sentence would bring the administration of justice into disrepute, which is a very high threshold. Uh, and the reason for that rule is that uh, unless there was some certainty uh, that uh, when there's a sentence agreed to, the judge was going to impose it, um, you would not have uh, the same number of cases resulting in people uh, pleading guilty to them, right? If somebody said, look, you've come to some agreement, they're pleading guilty, but who knows what will happen? Um, uh, once again, it's important that there be um, some predictability in the process so as to encourage cases like this tragic case uh, to resolve. And so I think that's just an important thing for the public to know when you're uh, watching uh, sort of coverage or reading about coverage uh, about um, how a, a sentencing decision is uh, reached um, where there is a guilty plea and where you've got uh, the prosecution and the defense have come to an agreement uh, in terms of what the sentence should be. In those circumstances, well, everything would be laid out for the judge to explain uh, how that conclusion was reached so that the judge could determine whether imposing the sentence would uh, bring the administration of justice into disrepute, right? Um, so it's laid out for the judge. But the judge is essentially required uh, to do what uh, has been agreed to uh, unless that very high threshold has been met. Um, and once again, it's an example of where consistency and predictability um, is necessary in order to uh, ensure that the system is able to function. Uh, and the theory behind all of that is that, of course, uh, the prosecution and the defense would have uh, the best information about the strengths of the case and all of the issues that might be involved uh, and where they come to an agreement, uh, barring those kind of that exceptionally high um, threshold, uh, the sentences being asked for um, should be imposed by the judge. 
I'm going to admit my ignorance here. Before we started doing all of these, my uh, imperfect and flawed understanding of the legal system is that judges just sort of knew everything and all the rules and all the laws. And even if both parties submitted flawed submissions, the judge would say, actually, here's what should be happening instead of merely preferring one submission over another, which is what I have come to understand is how the system functions. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing, you know. Um, Judges are, in Canada, ordinarily uh, required to deal with all manner of cases, right? Judges would ordinarily have had some, might have had some particular background as a lawyer, uh, but they would hear cases of all kinds, family, civil, criminal, all kinds of things. Yes. Uh, And uh, the court, I think, very much does rely upon uh, counsel bringing and making fulsome submissions and providing the law to the judge so that the judge could make a, a proper decision about it. No one, no judge, is going to be uh, a fluent expert up to the minute, <laughs> updated on every possible area of the law. And so the system works uh, because of the fact that you've got counsel on both sides, right? Yes. Providing the information to the judge so that you've got an independent, fair-minded person uh, deciding what to do. But uh, they rely upon counsel showing up and providing that Uh, information for them. And that's why it can be so problematic where one party doesn't have counsel, right? Or neither party has counsel. You can just imagine how much more challenging that's going to be. Put yourself in the position of the judge. If you've got one person showing up with a lawyer presenting all manner of case law and making submissions and the other person doesn't have that, um, you could uh, well imagine how you'd be very much at a uh, a disadvantage, uh, even doing your level best to try to come to a, uh, a fair decision. So that's why it's just so important there be counsel uh, so that judges have all of the required information so that they can uh, make an informed decision. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll take a quick break and continue legally speaking in just a moment. Back to Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, I must admit another uh, imperfect understanding I had with regard to the rules of civil procedure and how the civil law system works is I didn't realize until doing this job and learning more from counsel such as yourself and others that um, anybody can file a lawsuit without having to obtain permission from a judge or some other process to stop frivolous or merit or complaints that lack, that lack merit from being... Being filed, I always assumed that you'd have to ask and the judge would just look at you and say, no, get out of here if you didn't have sufficient cause of action, although that's not how the system works. Um, there's something being called being declared a vexatious litigant. How does that all work? Yes, indeed. Um, and I should say this, the, the civil justice system relies in large part on things being resolved outside of the court process, right? Mm-hmm. There will There is a process of filing paperwork to start a legal claim, but most civil claims over over money um, wind up getting resolved without ever going to court for a trial, yes. right? The lawyers sort the thing out, come to some agreement, and the thing never sees the light of day in court. Mm-hmm. And boy, that's a good thing because the court system would go to its knees immediately if everything wound up being litigated. Yes, But much of that relies upon people acting reasonably and in many cases having counsel to sort of dispassionately sort out the you know argument over money. All, all good. But once in a while, uh, you wind up with somebody who uh, starts uh, cases endlessly that have no merit um, uh, in order to cause grief for others or you know, get attention or whatever it is that they're up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a process by which um, 
the court can declare somebody to be, as you've mentioned, a vexatious litigant, you know, that kind of person who's starting unmeritorious claims for, you know, improper reasons, right, to cause grief or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's declared a vexatious litigant, it means that they can no longer just go and start a civil claim and sue somebody without getting permission from a judge as a screening mechanism, right? It's like, look, we realized you're a troublemaker. If you want to try to, you know, sue somebody else, you're going to have to come and explain to a judge why that claim might have some merit, uh, lest you just pester everyone by suing them for no good reason. Yes. Um, and so we have that in BC, but uh, a recent case came out of the uh, BC Court of Appeal dealing with one of these individuals who had been declared a vexatious litigant, uh, but the vexatious litigant uh, then moved on to charging somebody criminally. Uh, and that's an interesting thing, too. Uh, the, the process of uh, starting a, a criminal uh, action to charge somebody uh, involves a person going before a, a justice and swearing in information that they've got reasonable grounds to believe that the other person has committed a a criminal offense. And at one point uh, in our history, private prosecution would have been common, right? If you say, hey, that guy punched me, you could hire a lawyer, you could sue him, but you could hire a lawyer to go and charge him criminally and prosecute the person privately on your nickel. Um, We don't do that anymore uh, in British Columbia. In British Columbia, Crown counsel are required when somebody goes and swears one of these informations charging somebody mm-hmm. um, to either take over the prosecution and prosecute the person in the ordinary way or stay the prosecution, end it, right? So to make a decision, does the thing have merit? If so, carry on, right? Mm-hmm. If not, put an end to it. Uh, but the, the issue here was, is being declared a vexatious litigant, does that stop you from charging somebody criminally? Hmm. Uh, And the answer to that was, no, it doesn't. And that's because the um, civil procedures that allow somebody to be declared a vexatious litigant uh, are enacted by the province. Criminal procedure is something which is within the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal government. The provincial government cannot make criminal law or criminal procedure. Uh, And so the provincial scheme to declare somebody civilly as a vexatious litigant doesn't stop them uh, from going and swearing in information and charging a person. The remedy for that is what occurred in this case, which is Crown Council will take the thing over. If it doesn't meet the charge approval threshold, stay it. And that's the end of it, right? Or if it does, take it over and proceed with it. Um, it actually, this reading this decision caused me to uh, remember a a case from uh, Victoria a number of years ago now Mm -hmm. where there was a prosecutor in a jury trial who was prosecuting somebody for uh, offenses with respect to uh, possession of a weapon for a dangerous purpose. Mm -hmm. And the Crown Counsel, the prosecutor in the case, had the the gun in question, which was, you know, strapped up so it couldn't fire. Yes. And was holding it up and showing the jury the weapon in question. Oh, yes, I remember this story. This is good. I love this. Yeah. On the break, the the guy who was charged went down to the court registry and swore an information charging the prosecutor with possession of a weapon for a purpose dangerous on the basis <laughs> of him holding it short, leaving it around in front of the jury. Uh, and, that, and that got more complicated because you couldn't just have the you know prosecutor's colleague just stay the charge. <laughs> 
uh, you know, stench of impropriety. So they had to go and hire an ad hoc private lawyer who had not associated with the prosecutor to review that and decide, not surprisingly, this has no merit in the state proceedings. <laughs> so what happened to the, the proceedings that were underway? Were they paused or what happened? I think they would have just gone along merrily, but uh, you you can imagine the uh, the mischief being caused by that. Uh, <laughs> the prosecutor being charged with doing the same thing by the accused. Um, so there is a mechanism for all of this. And I should say that decision in rare circumstances, the decision to stay the prosecution, mm-hmm. could be can be reviewed pursuant to what's referred to as an extraordinary remedy in the Supreme Court. And you can imagine why, as a matter of principle, in a rare circumstance, it could be necessary to review a Crown's decision to stay a a prosecution. And so as an example, let's say, uh, this is, I guess, not too far off of British Columbia's experience. Let's say the uh, Premier got, uh, you know, uh, stopped for impaired driving. Yes. Um, And the uh, Attorney General directs Crown Counsel to stay those proceedings against the premier because they'd be you know, politically embarrassing, for example. Hmm. That might be an example of where uh, there could be uh, an imp- private information sworn. And then even if Crown tried to stay it, um, if it was done for that kind of an improper purpose, you can imagine how, uh, pursuant to that kind of an extraordinary remedy in Supreme Court, that decision could, in rare circumstances, be uh, overruled uh, by a Supreme Court uh, judge to avoid that kind of mischief, right? If you had, you know, Crown um, staying a prosecution for political reasons, for example, that's the kind of thing which in a very rare circumstance, um, you could see a judicial decision being made to permit that prosecution to proceed. But in all but the most extraordinary circumstance like that one, um, it's uh, Crown Counsel's obligation to uh, apply a, the charge approval standard, which would be is there a substantial likelihood of conviction based on the evidence that they're aware of? And is it in the public interest to proceed? And so where a private information is sworn, the Crown Council is required to make that assessment and either say, yes, it meets that threshold, and then they would take it over and prosecute uh, the person, or no, it doesn't meet that uh, dual threshold, at which point they would stay the proceedings, and that's the end of it. Uh, but... Uh, because of how the criminal code is structured, uh, any person is free to uh, show up if they have those reasonable grounds to believe that somebody's committed a criminal offense and they can um, swear the information and there's a process for the uh, justice to hear evidence if they wish to in deciding whether to what's we call issue process to start the proceedings going. Uh, and then it would be for Crown Counsel to decide, what do you do? All right. right. We're all out of time, Michael Mulligan, but we appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Stay safe and have a great day. Absolutely. You too. Talk to you next week.